This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars and politics podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy, Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Stephen Kent, and this is a continuation of our special interview series where I break away from our normal show and speak with someone in politics, media, or something related and talk to them about their fandom of Star Wars and how it shaped them personally and even professionally. This is our second broadcast since we have joined the RetroZap Podcast Network. So if you're new to the show, hello there. That's my Obi-Wan impression. Hello there. Hello there. I'm really bad at this stuff. Anyways, our show, it is a bi-weekly podcast, so regularly scheduled episodes are every other week. Um, this past week, we had just done an episode on the politics of Star Wars based on the author's intent and whether or not it's a liberal, conservative, or libertarian, or other, other kind of story. And you can find that in our feed as well. Now, we try to create more content for you in between those main episodes, like this interview series. That sort of ebbs and flows as we are able to book people to actually be on the show in that way. So this month, you can actually expect content from us every week. Uh, We're all really excited about that. Uh, It's definitely special and we're able to do that. And we will always let you know sort of what to expect and what sort of interviews we have coming up so that you can always catch Beltway Banthas in your feed. Um, And you can always get that first notification by becoming a subscriber. So do hit that subscribe button in your podcatcher or on iTunes. Uh, You definitely won't regret it. Just some quick notes of business before we get to the interview. If you are new to the show or not, please do leave us a review on iTunes. It really means a lot to us and it helps us get the show out to more people. We haven't had any new reviews in quite some time as listenership has been going up steadily and it it does make a big difference for this show. Um, Not only because we hear from you about what you're liking about the show and what we can continue to do, but it also helps us get fed to more people on iTunes. If people are putting in certain keywords, the more reviews we have, the better likelihood of getting fed to folks who are looking for a Star Wars and politics podcast. So please do take the time to do that. It, uh, it means a lot to us. You can email us your thoughts on episodes, guest ideas, or things that you'd like us to discuss. We love hearing ideas from you and also answering questions about Star Wars and politics. Um, that could be about Star Wars, about politics, or about the politics of Star Wars. Any you know crossover that you really want to have. Please send that to us at beltwaybanthas at gmail.com. Now, today, you're hearing my chat with Eric Geller of Politico, which is my favorite politics publication, so this was especially special for me. I caught on to Eric Geller's fandom when I saw him conversing with Chuck Wendig and Pablo Hidalgo and Brian Young on Twitter, and I was like, huh, that reporter from Politico is awfully chummy with Star Wars people. Well, come to find out, <laughs> after a little light research, a uh, little light Googling, it turns out Eric Geller was Bantha well before he was Beltway, and he had written for StarWars.com, hosted uh, the Forcecast for a little while, and also it hosted Rebels Roundtable, and, and does a whole host of other things in, in fandom. So he'd already had quite a footprint in this little world that we operate in, So this made for a really great conversation about the politics of Star Wars, and we got to go a little bit deeper than I usually get to, so that was particularly cool. Um, Big thanks to Eric for joining me and and giving me a little bit of his time um, away from Politico. I met Eric outside the Politico office, and we chatted in the hallway, so there's a little bit of uh, background noise and a little bit of chatter. It was kind of the end of the business day, so there are people leaving the office. There are planes overhead. You can hear taxis outside. But uh, the conversation is really, really great, so I really don't think any of that detracts from it. Um, so here is Eric Geller, cybersecurity reporter for Politico. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Absolutely. Um Eric, I just want to get to the real issue that the audience wants to know about, and this is something I know you work on every day. Yes. What is the cyber? Uh, well, <laughs> what I mean, what isn't the cyber? 
it, it seems like every day we're hearing about new forms of the cyber. Everybody's getting hacked all the time. You know, I think um, I think it's this um, nebulous space where people um, are being compromised and attacked and targeted uh, in ways that most Americans don't fully understand yet. And it's going to be interesting to see how policy and just human behavior changes as people start to learn more. People in government and of government start to learn more about what exactly it means to be targeted by a hacker. Yeah. Did you expect this to be as much of an issue that we'd be talking about in this election? Because it just seems to keep coming up. Yeah, well, I mean, so I started uh, at Politico, actually, the day that the Democratic National Committee hack was revealed. Okay. And it's kind of been a uh, an avalanche of cyber news ever since then, but certainly before that, I don't really think anyone expected uh, cyber to become a story just because, you know, we've heard about data breaches at private companies for years. I mean, I'm sure most people remember that Target was hacked, Google has been hacked. I mean, these things haven't typically been presidential campaign issues, but once you start talking about hacking political organizations, especially when there could be a connection or a, a, a the appearance of a connection, I should say, uh, to one candidate or another, you start to get really hot at that point in terms of the discussion, the political discussion, because now it's not just a technical story. Now it's not just this company doesn't have security. Now it's, is a foreign government trying to influence the outcome of the election or just undermine confidence in the election? And that's a really new thing. It's certainly a new thing in the U.S. Now there's a lot going on there. So you've, you've really been busy since you got started. There have been, I think probably the three major cyber stories have been Russian cybersecurity, yeah. um, the email scandal, yes, and there's a third one that I'm blanking on. It's my Aleppo moment, um, but I mean, there's this it's your Rick been, Perry moment. It's, 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 it's the third <laughs> one of the three. Uh, I mean, there are, there are a, a number of stories. I mean, the Russian one is probably the most. It's probably the sexiest because you have echoes of the Cold War. Uh -huh. You have a new domain that people don't really understand. You have very unpopular, inflammatory, controversial candidates, um, and you know. If you hate either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, the way that you look at both the email story and the Russia story is through this prism of what you think about the, the sort of the principal actors, uh -huh. if we could say. Um, and so, yeah, no, those are those two stories. Actually, the interchange between those two stories and the way that they have connected on the campaign trail is really interesting. Every time Donald Trump is asked about cybersecurity, he tries to pivot very quickly to the Clinton email story, and there is a real cybersecurity dimension to that. Um, and we're certainly looking at, you know what are the next stories from the email scandal, from the email story? What are the emails going to come out you know, in the next four or five weeks before the election? What are they going to show? Because the FBI is releasing more emails, so we're going to have to see sort of where that goes. Well, I appreciate you indulging me on all of those issues that sure. you deal with every day, because I just want to frame up for our listeners kind of what you do and work on on a day-to-day -day basis. But we are here to talk a little bit about your Star Wars story sure. and your journey as a Star Wars fan. So, I mean, really, at the beginning, like, where does Star Wars start for you? Uh, my earliest memory is watching The Phantom Menace in 2003 when a friend said to me, hey, you might like Star Wars. Have you ever watched Star Wars before? And I was 12 at the time. I'd never seen Star Wars. And uh, he said, let's, you know, um, let's, let's start from the beginning. And so, watch episode one. Watched episode two, obviously episode three, not out yet. So we went back, watched four, five, and six. And, you know, at that point I was essentially hooked. So fast forward a couple years, I did the midnight premiere of episode three. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, trying to figure out the exact timing, maybe a year to a year and a half after that, I started listening to a Star Wars podcast called The Force Cast. Okay. Um, and this was very early on in the first iteration of that show. It started in September 2006. Uh, few months after that, I, I would start to email them. I would start to just sort of say, hey, what's up? Um, I've got some thoughts to share. Uh, I sort of became notorious for having a lot of things to say whenever I wrote in, whenever I called in on their live shows. And they eventually started to, I guess, appreciate my enthusiasm because they asked me to help out in a few different ways uh, behind the scenes. Um, fast forward a couple more years. It's now 2009. I'm 18. And the guy who sort of runs the show at the Force.net, which is which is which is the which is the um, cast, yeah. says, "Do you want to help out? Come in, do our social media." You know, I had already become very active on Twitter, uh, Facebook, a bunch of other platforms, and he said, "Do you want to sort of help us reestablish our identity out there?" So I started doing that. Um, they then had me start doing some writing, some news reporting. Um, I went to a number of different conventions, multiple celebrations, New York Comic Con. 
Uh, I also started doing their Clone Wars reviews, um, and then I did their uh, Rebels reviews. So I sort of was their TV reviewer, news reporter, uh, behind-the-scenes podcast helper. Um, now, all the while, are you a young aspiring journalist in this yes. time? Yes. I had started doing journalism in middle school, um, and journalism is sort of a uh, haughty way to describe the, the very local news type you know, stories that I was writing. Um, but, but in high school, it became more serious, uh, certainly in college, and you know, by the time that I am sort of getting toward the end of what you could call phase one of my TFN experience, which is you know, before I'm a podcaster, when I'm still doing behind-the-scenes stuff, you know, this is 2011, 2012, early 2013. Um, I'm in college at this point. I'm doing a lot of uh, serious campus reporting, um, trying to do as much political coverage as I can whenever we have a speaker come to our campus, uh, people from the NSA, from, you know, the state Supreme Court. I mean, you name it. I'm, I'm sort of one of the people who is taking the lead and talking to those folks. So I'm sort of juggling this budding interest in uh, national political reporting with um, trying to basically make a, a, a have a bigger footprint at, at TFN. Now why why did Star Wars connect with you as a young person? Like what do you think was different about you or special about Star Wars that kind of made y'all an obvious connection? Well I think for me and I've been thinking a lot about this in the context of the new Harry <coughs> Potter play and book and people talking about how Harry Potter is coming back and I think one of the differences between the two that really explains why Star Wars is my thing is Harry Potter is very much about a, a particular group of characters. It was always based around, you know, for, for a decade it was based around basically three people and the people that those three people knew. Um, Star Wars is very much a setting and, and there are certainly attempts to use the Harry Potter setting to tell new stories. I think one of the reasons that they aren't proving as popular as the original Harry Potter books um, and one of the reasons that Star Wars has, I would say, a more even level of popularity no matter who the characters are is that it's much more interesting, I think, to imagine yourself in the world of Star Wars just because it's much more foreign than Harry Potter. You know, as, and I'm using Harry Potter as an example because I think it's this other big tentpole franchise that offers a nice contrast. For me, what, what's so great about Star Wars is that all these different environments, these different locales, whether it's a cantina or a, a base for insurgent soldiers or you know, a Jedi temple, they all have something at once alien and familiar about them. So you can imagine what it is like to be a guerrilla fighter, you know, holed up in a base as these giant machines are looming down on you, but you don't really know what it's like to wield a lightsaber, and, and you don't really understand what it's like to shoot an energy weapon. Those things don't exist in the real world yet, but what does exist is the mentality that I think a lot of these scenes, a lot of these locales capture. You know, the cantina is a fantastic example of this, and it's why I think every Star Wars project has to have a cantina. It, it captures something that a lot of people either know or want to know, which is this frontier setting, this sense of not knowing exactly who's around you, but sort of having a feel for what they're like, and, and, and sort of not knowing what's going to happen next, not knowing the next type of person who's going to walk in. That's why I think the cantina is so interesting, is because it is the epitome of this, the otherness that Star Wars brings out, you know, the alien creatures that... that just blow your mind, and yet at the same time, are people drinking at a bar? It's archetypal, you exactly. Yeah. You have the combination of, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in this place, to wield these weapons, to drink these drinks, to have this technology, and yet at the same time, on a human level, I can understand what it's like to go to a bar. To, what do you think Jawa juice tastes like? Yeah, but right, <laughs> but I mean, so even it's funny you mentioned Jawa juice. Even the descriptions of the drinks in Star Wars. Uh -huh play on these notions that we have about drinks that have particularly strong tastes, that have reputations for being particularly hard to swallow. I mean, everything down to the, that level of detail is rooted in the human experience. And I don't, I don't see that in a lot of other franchises. I think Star Trek, for all the, the political lore imbued in Star Trek, and I do love Star Trek for that political stuff, but there's something more fantasy-based about Star Wars that is, is somehow more human and more able to appeal to us on a visceral level not on this sort of, um, on more of the heart level than the brain level, I would yeah. say. Yeah, so that's what, that's what does it for me. I'm always interested in meeting, I don't know, I guess are we like third gen or fourth gen fans who, I mean, our midnight show, the first one we were able to go out and be on our own for right. our parents was Revenge of the Sith. Right. I would say third gen, yeah. Yeah, about, about third right. gen. I mean, how, I imagine you have some strong opinions about the way that fans interact in between the generations, but... 
What do you think is special about Star Wars today as opposed to when it was first conceived? It's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this as we've seen the marketing and the promotion for the most recent films. And one of the things I think sets this generation apart, and I would even say we're in the fourth generation now. Okay. Um, that makes it, sense. My daughter, I guess, is like yeah, first in I mean, Force Awakens. If somebody yeah. whose first midnight experience was Revenge of the Sith has children, that's yeah. the fourth generation at that yeah. point. Um, one of the things I think makes it interesting is social media has completely changed the way we look at the people in Star Wars. So, you know, 20 years ago, if you were a Star Wars fan who, who didn't have a family connection to the production, where you could just go to the set with your dad or your uncle or whatever, it was very unlikely that, that any random Star Wars fan that you could, you know, pluck out of the ether would have a personal friendship with an actor there in a Star Wars movie. There, there yeah. was a wall, and it was both cultural in the sense that we had notions about celebrities where we, we built them up to be something. And, you know, it was kind of the tail end of a long era that included, you know, Cary Grant and Marilyn Monroe and just larger-than-life people who we didn't really see as human beings. We saw them as as the collection of the characters that they played and because we couldn't associate with them as human beings. I mean, I, I'm not talking about me personally because obviously I wasn't alive then, but people didn't feel the connection to celebrities that we do now because there was a very carefully sort of sculpted, manicured image that celebrities had. And it was designed, you know, by the people who worked for them. And now, you don't need those people to communicate with an audience. You don't need a publicist. You can go on Twitter and say, you know, what sandwich you're eating or what movie theater you're at for a premiere. You could say, you know, if you got a new dog. These are not the kinds of things, these little messages, these sort of everyday extraneous things. You know, would you tell your publicist to release a statement that you got a new dog, you know, if you're Marilyn Monroe, you know, 40 <laughs> years ago? or what? No, I mean, you would release statements praising your movies or, pra you know, mourning the death of a colleague. I mean, it was a much more carefully crafted experience. And so that's what our image of celebrities was 40 years ago. Now, you know, and this includes Star Wars, you can be friends with somebody who is a voice actor on a Star Wars TV show. I certainly am. I mean, I'm friends with Star Wars authors. These are people who, you know, decades ago would be placed in a different, you know, tier. I, I don't I don't know necessarily about authors just because when you're on the screen it helps more people reach you, but I think certainly it's true of movie actors, especially social media, cons, all these yeah, things, all the things allow that, you to establish that, relationships. All with the these things people. that connect you to human beings as human beings allow you to start thinking about them in a different way. And and I think it's really interesting to look at, you know, the way I think about it is the first generation of Star Wars actors had never seen Star Wars because there was no Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Second generation, Natalie Portman, Ewan McGregor, etc. They had obviously seen Star Wars. They were old enough. It, it existed. But they weren't Star Wars fans because, in the sense that we now think of Star Wars fans, because they didn't have Star Wars fan experiences. Conventions weren't a thing when Ewan McGregor was growing up and enjoying Star Wars, right? I mean, that was just yeah. far too far back. Then you have the, the next generation, which is the Clone Wars actors, who are you know the first ones to sort of use Twitter as they're producing their projects? You know, Ewan McGregor's on Twitter now, but he, it didn't exist during you know Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. So now you have Clone Wars actors who are not just people who grew up with Star Wars like the prequel people did, but they're people who grew up with Star Wars in the social media era specifically, and so they're able to relate not just as fans of the content but as participants in the circle in the social media I circle. I have never thought about it on this broad of a level. I think John Boyega is the best example of this. He is someone who is a fan of Star Wars just as much as you know Ewan McGregor was when Ewan was probably John's age. I don't know if the years exactly match up, but yeah. you could think of it that way. But then what John adds is, as he's been a fan, as he's been growing up a fan of Star Wars, he has also been using social media. Mm -hmm. You know, Daisy Ridley, before she deleted her Instagram account, was an Instagram user, not just like, I'm a movie star and they want me to have Instagram. She used Instagram. And yeah. so you can sort of think about the Force Awakens generation of, of actors as people who didn't just grow up with Star Wars, but grew up with the Star Wars fan community as it manifested on the internet. It makes me think about some of Star Wars production team, and particularly Pablo Hidalgo yeah. is incredibly active on, on Twitter and social yeah. media. He'll, he'll answer your questions. You yeah. have a question about something, he'll just give it to you. That's because he came up in the era of fandom where, I mean, all you had to, you just had to read and read and read, and right. you, you weren't connected to people. But yeah. I think now he, he just serves as a resource because it's almost like a I don't know, like giving it back. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, he has talked many times about how he, one of the things that brought him into Star Wars was the supplemental material for the role-playing games. Uh -huh. And, you know, you can imagine 
if you're a role-playing gamer, you want to know every detail that could possibly be relevant to any story that you want to tell or participate in. But if that's not in the book, where are you going to get that? You're going to write a letter to Lucasfilm, and maybe they'll answer it in a month or two. Um, but you know, you can sort of think about that craving for information and the inability to get it quickly as you know shaping the experiences of a lot of the people. You know, in Pablo's generation, Dan Wallace, who's another big Star Wars writer, a huge uh, you know fan of role-playing games and all the supplemental material. I don't know this for a fact, but I would guess that part of their enthusiasm for talking to fans comes from the fact that when they were in our position, there was no mechanism for yeah. getting an answer to a question that hadn't been published. What is your favorite movie? Star Wars film. Um, you know, I, I really love... The, it's funny, I was talking about Star Trek earlier. I really do love the political messages in Star Wars and the messages about democracy and not squandering your chance to participate in something and not letting the wool be pulled over your eyes. And I think you can see where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. I, I think my favorite film um, is Revenge of the Sith. Now, Force Awakens may edge it out. On some days, I say Force Awakens. On others, you know, we were just talking a lot about politics. I, I would say The Force Awakens. Those two are really up there at the top. I think some of the, one of the reasons I like TFA a lot is because it brings the the generational spirit of kind of like I don't want to say millennial, but like sure. the kind of irreverent spirit of people my age. It brings that to Star Wars. I think one of the best examples is when Oscar Isaac, it, it, you know, or when when Poe is talking to to Kylo and he says, "Who talks first? You know. That kind of humor, I mean, you can see an, an antecedent to it in Han Solo in terms of just being irreverent, but that specific kind of, like, you know, I'm going to subvert the, the stereotype. It's almost breaking the fourth wall in yeah. the sense that the hero is talking to the villain and he's been captured, and this is very much the kind of thing that a hero would do, and he seems very conscious of it in that moment. Um, when I reviewed The Force Awakens, I called it a, the first Star Wars movie that knows it's a Star Wars movie, and... For me, that quality is one of the things that makes it one of my favorites. But as I said, on and off, Force Awakens, Revenge of the Sith, I guess I would say both of them. Have you grown to love The Force Awakens more over the past year as it's kind of sunk in? Or have you sort of started to get a little bit more critical of it in different ways? You know, I, It's I, aged differently for everyone. I have, so I sort of have the same opinion I did at the time. You That's know, good. Part of the reason is because I did see it the requisite, you know, like 11 times or whatever, but it was a very compact schedule. It was probably 11 times within the first month, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and so yeah. I haven't seen it, with one exception, essentially since it came out, since that window that it came out. Because I don't really rewatch re movies that often. I bet if I watched it now with that critical mindset, I could find some things that didn't work for me. Um, you know, I'm certainly not saying it's a perfect movie, but um, I think the, the spirit of the film really outweighs any of the... Um, the nitpicking that I could do. Oh, I'm with you. I, I don't really do the, the critical lens so much as I just want to go with how it makes me feel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it makes you feel good. Uh, favorite character in Star Wars? It's another great question. I mean, it's tough. I used to say Mace Windu. I still sort of say Mace Windu just because I think... Is there mystery there? We don't know much about him. Partly that. Partly in the era of the prequels and the Jedi kind of losing their way. I really like somebody who is sort of doesn't take BS yeah. and and is very much, you know, I like the scene with Anakin where, where you know, he says, you're on this council, but we don't make you a master. Really telling him, you know, check your expectations. You know, you know we have standards here and I'm going to be the voice of reason. And, you know, I don't know what, what would have happened if, if Mace Windu had abstained from that decision. Would Yoda have wanted to make Anakin a, a master? You know, I like to think of Mace Windu as kind of the real politic kind of face of the Jedi Council, you know, having this this hard-nosed approach to what it means to be a Jedi. Um, another character that, I mean, you know, everybody says Luke, obviously, but I've, I've grown to appreciate Luke more, I think, since re-watching some of the scenes in Empire where he's dealing with Yoda, just because, and also, you know, the Emperor and, and Vader and, and Return of the Jedi. I think one of the things that's so fantastic about him and makes him different from other heroes is that he has so much to lose personally when he faces the Emperor. And, of course, this has been said a hundred times, but this is just my rationale. You know, it, it's very easy to say, like, well, there are a lot of heroes in Star Wars who, you know, reject the dark side. And that's true. I think in a lot of cases we see it as they're rejecting the dark side as I'm just not going to use this tool that's out there for me in a situation where it could help me. But Luke's rejection goes beyond that. He He's basically saying, I'm, I'm going to reject the dark side, not just as an option in this fight that I have coming up, but as a way to save my life. If I embrace the dark side, the Emperor will take me on as his apprentice. I'm going to reject it. 
and risk my own life. I'm going to be I'm, I'm going to be killed right now because I've rejected the dark side. I think his context for doing so is different than you know to use an example that's ongoing with rebels. You know, Ezra right now we're seeing grapple with the dark side. If he eventually rejects it, uh, I expect it'll be in a very different context from Luke, right? I mean, Ezra is grappling with it as a tool he can use in fights. His his challenge is not, you know, do I at the at the risk of my life do I reject the dark side? So I really like the way that that played out in the original trilogy, and that's that's why I would put Luke up there. So I would say Mace Windu um, and Luke, and I gotta throw in Rey. I mean, she's so great. I, I love <laughs> it, it's just she's too darn likable. Well, I love her, I love her. <laughs> and I and I especially just I love the the contrast between you know when she rejects taking the lightsaber with her in Maz's castle, and she says, "I'm never touching that thing again." And I just love the way that it all sort of clicks into place for her, where she recognizes that this is something that she has to do. Um, the best heroes are the sort of the reluctant heroes. Um, yeah. and, and we do sort of see that with Luke, but I think he also, we see Luke embracing it more. And of course, this is just the first movie with Rey, so maybe this will change. But I think one of the things that's great about her is that she has all this power, but she all she wants is that human connection to the people that, that left her behind. And it's only when she essentially has no other choice that she really sort of takes on the force and takes on that lightsaber. So those are my three picks from the trilogies. That is all fair and good. I like it. Um, I want to pivot a little bit towards the politics of Star Wars. And to get us there, I, I saw that you, uh, I don't have Politico pros. So I wasn't able to actually look at it myself, but I saw you interviewed Chris Lynch. Um, I did not. A colleague did. But, a colleague um, did of yes. the Department of Defense. Yes. There was a Star Wars round of questions in that line yes, of questioning? Yes, there was. Um, this came about, um, I had read a Bloomberg interview with this guy. He's the head of the agency at the Pentagon that is trying to essentially improve their technology, uh -huh. um, trying to find bugs in their code, trying to improve the way they do things. And I had read a Bloomberg interview where there's a picture of him, and it looks like there's a BB-8 sort of embedded in the wall behind him and I think it's an illustration I don't think he actually smashed into the wall but it's like a BB-8 sitting on the wall behind him and I immediately started to wonder like what's up with this guy um, he you know talks about Star Wars in the interview and so I, I, my colleague mentioned that he was going over to the Pentagon to talk to this guy and I said hey ask him a lightning round of Star Wars questions and he did um, and you know I, I, I don't remember most of the answers I do remember that he said his favorite lightsaber color was blue uh -huh. um, and uh, he had mentioned that once he was in a meeting and um, someone knocked on his door and handed him a piece of paper with the drawing of an AT-AT on it and, I, and he, he's, he hasn't figured out who this person is but he wants to find them um, you know it's, it's, um, it's amazing that it's funny to think about how weird we find it when we discover that people at a big government agency like that are Star yeah. Wars fans because you know, they may work at the Pentagon, one of the most famous buildings in the world, but they're human beings. They're allowed to have interests beyond, you know, <clears throat> cyber warfare and kinetic warfare and, and nuclear warfare and all the kinds of things they have to deal with for work. You know, they're allowed to be fans of Star Wars and other things. And so I just thought it was really funny that here's one of the people who's responsible for essentially driving innovation at a very innovation-resistant building, a building that, you know, look, they still use floppy disks to control a lot of the nuclear arsenal. This is a, a place that's very hesitant about embracing new things. He's got a very tough job, as, as he talks about in that Q&A, and yet here he is, you know, loving Star Wars just like people, just like people like me. That is what this show is really all about. I think over the course of my working in, in politics, I've just met so many people who Star Wars is a part of like their everyday yeah. language. They drop the references. They are just their their lives are Star Wars memes. Yeah. Like it's just what they do. Um, and people, especially I think in in DC, love to talk about it because this is a town that in a lot of ways works to dehumanize you. Mm. You are in this mm -hmm. camp. You are politician. You are journalist. You yeah. are this. You are that. And when people can actually talk a little bit about the one thing that unites most Americans, which is Star Wars, right. um, it's just this incredible wall that you can just break down almost immediately. It is, and at the same time, and this is just like a funny <clears throat> aside, you know, every time Ted Cruz has mentioned Star Wars, my Twitter feed has just become, you know, just like, oh, I can't believe he likes Star Wars. Oh, if he likes Star Wars, maybe I should stop. I mean, some of it is joking, but at the same time, there are ways in which the politics can reassert themselves over the mutual interests in very sort of 
I would say I'd like to think tongue-in-cheek ways, but I, I do think some of it is serious. People saying, you know, he doesn't deserve to call himself a Star Wars fan. He doesn't, he doesn't like, you know, and this is true of many politicians uh, of many political stripes. But um, it, is, it is interesting for me to watch essentially any time someone mentions Star Wars in a political context, to well, watch the, the political backlash. I think, I think this, this brings me to something I wanted to – we're going to go over next week in our episode with Michael O'Connor. He wrote a piece in RetroZap about Star Wars as a clearly liberal opus. And, I mean, do you think about Star Wars in the context of having a commitment to a side of the political spectrum, like its message is meant to take you in a certain direction? Or do you think that it is really just what you bring to the table and it's, it's if, if you view it as this or that, it's kind of just projection? I mean, you can certainly go back to what George Lucas has said about his own intentions. I mean, he, he is a very liberal guy. Yeah. Um, you know, the rebels are essentially supposed to represent the counterculture. Um, the empire is, you know, the political establishment, the sort of center-right political climate that was, you know, on the ascent in the late 70s and early 80s. At the same time, you know, if you talk to Republicans who like Star Wars, especially rather conservative ones, what they will tell you is um, one of the things they like about it is the the empire with its sort of bureaucratic stodginess represents to them, um, you know, big government liberalism with uh, inflexible views of, um, uh, of innovation and of sort of choice, you know, this, this sort of repression that they, that they see as coming from um, the liberal worldview and, you know, the, the, the um, I guess you could say the rebels are sort of, you know, especially libertarian in their view as far as, you know, wanting people to make their own choices outside of a central structure. Um, but, you know, again, you, you have liberals coming back and saying, well, the empire is portrayed as intolerant and, and not accepting of, um, in Star Wars, it would be aliens. I think in the real world, you might say, you know, gays, lesbians, uh, transgender people, uh, racial minorities. Um, certainly the, the views that the empire is associated with tend to be disproportionately associated with um, especially conservative people in the United States. Um, I, just in my experience, most conservatives I know are imps, you know, they, they're all about the empire and then they're offended right. when you call them. Well, <laughs> and, 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 you know, look, I mean, there's also the, just, if you set aside the sort of fascism of the empire, there, there is something to be said for wanting a degree of order, right? I mean, if you think about what George Lucas and, and, and sort of the hippies that he sort of modeled the rebels after, if you think about what they represented, it was really a sense of disorder. It was really a sense of um, a degree of choice that sort of pushed the bounds of attempts to structure things, right? I mean, the, the central notion of, you know, being a hippie or being a radical is that you don't like structure in a lot of ways. And so in one sense, you could see the empire as saying a degree of structure is needed. And, you know, obviously the empire takes that much farther than I think a lot of sort of real world human beings would say is appropriate. I mean, I, I don't know too many people who would support the use of a Death Star, sort of the real world equivalent of that. Um, just to completely destroy a planet, but I know I know one or two. Yeah, I mean they exist, <laughs> but I think the idea that the idea of of order versus disorder, and we even see this in the in the Force Awakens with Hux. I mean that is very much a real salient political topic as far as like, do we want how much should people be able to make their own decisions, um, and how much should the government say, look. It's great for you to make some decisions, but others really create harm for people. And so we need to remove your ability to make some of these decisions. You know, I mean, debates about smoking bans, right? I mean, smoking is a personal choice, yeah. but, you know, secondhand smoke can kill people and it's a public health crisis. I mean, you really think about the empire as being the answer to complaints from people in the republic about, like, we just have no controls over public health. Like, there's just, we're spending so much money on preventable, you know, diseases that if we just told people they couldn't smoke, you know, the, the, the republic would be so much richer. I mean, you, you sort of think about those kinds of complaints about the republic and its weak control. You know, in a sense, that might be what made people accept the empire before it became this brutal, tyrannical regime when it was just about order. You can imagine people with those kinds of complaints gravitating towards it because it represents um, the imposition of limits on what is perceived as excesses, human excesses, you know, sentient being excesses. I mean, I think, and this goes back to why I love Revenge of the Sith. This, what I'm talking about now, obviously isn't shown there, but I think it's in the background of what Palpatine does, which is he appeals to this general feeling of unease with disorder. And he doesn't talk about smoking bans, but he talks about the separateness and all of that is wrapped up, the big and the small, is wrapped up in this feeling of disorder, of 
we're not putting enough limits on things, whether it's arm sales or, you know, cigarettes. I mean, that's a fake example, but yeah. it's that same notion of wanting limits on things because you believe that the absence of limits is creating chaos. The original Star Wars trilogy, we, we, know, we know its roots, you know, with, with the Vietnam War and, and, and George Lucas's kind of, we were talking about, you know, hippieism a little bit. So it was crafted to match that time. Yeah. And it, it, to me, the prequel trilogy has always seemed to like it fell into place by chance. Mm -hmm. um, with the third trilogy, what do you think the third trilogy is reflecting or showing or, or maybe going to tell us about the world we live in today? I'm inclined to think it's the re-entry of disorder. Mm -hmm. um, what do you see coming there? Or do you think that yeah. Disney is a little bit more politics immune? Well, it's interesting. I think the fact that there are going to be three directors probably insulates the trilogy from having an overarching political message just because, as you know, Bob Iger and Kathleen Kennedy can coordinate a political message if they want to, mm -hmm. but it's really the director's on the day of, you know, shooting and the accumulated days of shooting. It's really about how they think the movie should go. And then there are three of those, right? I mean, J.J. Abrams may still be involved in Episode 8, but he certainly doesn't have the ability to create harmony into Episode 8 the way that George Lucas did into Episode 5. Is that a weakness with this trilogy, you think? I think it's too early to say. I also, I mean... As much as I said I don't expect an overarching political theme, I also don't know that we need one. I mean, yeah. I think as much as the prequels didn't seem as deliberate as the originals, they did have this connection to the war on terror and this sort of early phase of um, absolutes. If you're not with us, then you're with the terrorists. Mm -hmm. And if you want, you know, I mean, you can sort of see Palpatine as, as being molded a little bit on sort of the, the Patriot Act era, you know, Bush administration Absolutely. in terms of we want expanded control and we want expanded power and if you criticize that we're going to marginalize you as somebody who um, is weak on national defense uh, might have sympathies for terrorist organizations I mean there are well established parallels there and I think we're sort of still in that sort of war on terror era as we go into the sequel trilogy so I don't know that we'll see a change with the sequels one thing we could see is more of an emphasis on insurgency um, you know, I, I don't think the, the, the resistance will do this because when I say insurgency, I'm thinking of suicide bombs, I'm thinking of yeah. lone wolf attacks, I'm thinking of things that would traditionally be more associated with um, the sort of the, the immoral side, which, which you could see as the first order, the side that is more dedicated to winning without principle. Um, and I don't, I don't think we're going to see that from the first order. So um, I guess to summarize, I would say if we were going to see a political message, it would probably be one modeled more on where we are now with, with ISIS as opposed to Al-Qaeda, but I don't see that happening just because the underdog now seems to be the resistance, and they are not the side that would engage in that kind of behavior. Now, maybe against military targets, and again, this, this sort of raises the Rebel Alliance question of, are they terrorists? You know, when they blow up a building, there could be civilians in there, and so that's like a whole other question, but I don't see the resistance attacking civilian centers of population in, in the manner that sort of the real world analog would. I think, I think with the question of, you know, whether Star Wars is liberal or conservative kind of linked with, with that last bit is that it's really not about ideology. It's about governed, the government versus the governed. Yes. And that dynamic changes all the time. I mean, it, it's. I don't think it's a coincidence that Star Wars has come back during two Republican administrations mm -hmm. and reflected the, the the events of that time. But the dynamic of conservatism and liberalism is much more set in its place than Republicanism and Democrat. You know, Democrats right. are like those things just move along a different yeah. sort of scale. Um, I don't know. I just. I guess I think about it just more as rebellion and the government. Yeah, and, and I mean that changes. George Lucas conceived of this film in part out of this feeling of wanting to rebel against just the entire studio system, the entire, you know, what his parent, what his dad expected of him in terms of, you know, I, I forget what his dad did, but he, he went to film school and his dad wasn't a huge fan of that. Um, the story of Star Wars started with rebellion. Um, Luke, you know, wants to leave his aunt and uncle. Obviously he does so under circumstances different than he planned, but when he is talking about leaving, it's not in the context of, his aunt and uncle are, you know, smoldering ruins. It's in the context of his aunt and uncle are, are constraining him, are, are holding him back from something. And so rebellion is very much at the heart of the entire story. And I think it will be interesting to see how that works in an era where, yes, the resistance is not the dominant government, 
but the characters are older, are not sort of, you know, uh, well, I guess the new, the new generation is younger, but they're, they're being mentored by older people, people who are not necessarily going to have a rebellious spirit, right? I mean, I, I don't foresee, you know, Leia teaching Rey the way that, you know, Luke as a young farm boy would have taught somebody. Luke as a young farm boy would have been much more about you know, you have to shirk authority figures and you have to, you know, um, you know, not listen to people when they're constraining you. I, I don't necessarily know that the older generation is going to be giving that lesson to the newer generation. So I think it'll be interesting to see how important that kind of political aspect of rebellion is in the new trilogy. Are there any Star Wars properties you're enjoying right now? Um, you know, new canon, books, comics, etc.? Yeah, I'm really liking the books. Um, I, I love the work that Chuck Wendig is doing with the Aftermath trilogy. Um, I, I really enjoyed Claudia Gray's uh, two novels, especially Bloodline. Um, the, I mean, again, for, for people who love politics, Bloodline especially is just, you know, it, 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 it's, the, it's the epitome of what a Star Wars political story should be in terms of the way that it approaches the character of Leia, who is really the most political character. It's practically an anarchist Yes, now. I, I mean, mean populists are... The populist versus the centrist, <laughs> that debate is so fascinating, and I really do hope that more of the books that are set in that time period will grapple with it. Um, so the books are great. You know, Obviously, I, I love the movies. I'm so excited for Rogue One. Um, I'm really enjoying Rebels as well. Um, I think... You know, I'm I I really did enjoy Legends a lot, and so I'm really happy to see Thrawn back. Um, I think just from the premiere, it's it's clear that Dave Filoni is being very respectful of the kind of character that Tim Zahn created. Um, I like the fact that, as he has said many times, Thrawn is a unique type of military officer who is not interested in political advancement um, and who is not bound up in the Force. You know, Tarkin, as much as he shunned the force was very much interested in politics. Tarkin is, is very much a strategist, and that's a different kind of threat. So I'm, I'm really happy with, uh, with where Rebels is right now. Well, Eric, I have really enjoyed having you on the show. Um, we try to bring in people every couple of weeks, and then every, you know, in between the interview weeks, we actually um, just kind of go into different topics in-universe about Star Wars. Um, out of universe, uh, to kind of bring us across the finish line here, we're in a pretty crazy time of politics. You're in journalism at this time. And I, I guess I'm just curious for your, your quick take on what do you see going on in the world that is not right to you? I mean, everyone feels this incredible sense of unease about this election. There's incredible tension around the world. What do you think is going on right now that has the country so tense and abnormal feeling? I think you can connect it to this broader global trend of the dissolution of norms um, and you know there are a whole host of reasons for this I mean one of them might just be that participation has expanded beyond the sort of insiders club and so you know institutionally if you build a system you're much more invested in keeping the norms of that system going and so when politics was very restricted and limited and patrician and you know, um, um, you know not egalitarian essentially Everybody was, who was involved was sort of connected to the people who built the system originally, however many generations ago that was. And so they had an interest in respecting the norms of the system. Now, I think the expansion of the franchise and the expansion of political participation is a net benefit. Um, it's clearly better to have you know, minorities participating in the political process than to have just white people participating. One of the... Um, and this isn't sort of connected to, to the racial aspect, but one of the just sort of general downsides of bringing more people into a process is there are more voices arguing for different things, and so it's harder for whatever norms exist in that moment to hold. Now, some of those norms aren't good, right? I mean, you can think about, you know, in the 60s, the expansion of voting rights as destroying a norm that was bad, which is essentially a very restricted franchise. But some norms are good, you know, the, the, the respect for national sovereignty i mean you know a couple of years ago russia invaded ukraine that would have been responded to very differently 40 years ago than it is now now the world is so much more linked that it's unfathomable that the united states would you know invade russia to push it out of ukraine part of the reason for that is russia knows that the world is more connected and yet historically two things went hand in hand interconnection and sort of these deep economic ties and the respect for the political norms that goes along with it. But when the respect for the norms goes away, you can, for example, 
invade a country and you can know that other countries aren't going to invade you in response because while you may have violated the norm, they still are economically linked to you. And so I think part of the unease that you described comes from this idea of long-held traditions of the way you talk to one another, the way you disagree with one another, the way you, you know, interact on the international level, not lying about things that are easily disprovable and not claiming that information to the contrary is propaganda, again, to go back to Russia. Um, these are relatively new things as they are being practiced now, which is to say um, the responses to them are very um, constrained, right? I mean, I, I keep going back to, you know, in the 40s or, or the 50s, really any time before the Cold War, you know, Russia invading Ukraine, policymakers in the United States would have a much wider set of tools to respond because they didn't depend as much on Russia and the costs of going to war were so much lower because nuclear warfare just wasn't a thing yet. What we're seeing in the world now is the simultaneous removal of certain tools to stop bad behavior and removal of norms that recommend against it. That's the way I would describe it. You know, it. we talked a little bit earlier about, about chaos and I guess if the third trilogy and just at least The Force Awakens had a theme that seems familiar to everything you just said, yeah. it's just the reintroduction of chaos yeah. into the system and the First Order, in a lot of ways, I've tied them to make America great again. I mean, it's, it's make the galaxy great again. It's make America great again. Everything is different. Everything is changing and it's changed very fast. A lot of people have lost their once held power. Um, you know, you have someone like Brindle Hux and, and his son Hux who, who come from privileged backgrounds and they want to try to restore everything to the way it was before yeah. by injecting chaos into the situation. And I, I guess that's what feels so familiar to everything that you just said there. I mean, the world is changing so fast and you have all of these different forces trying to push yeah. back on that in different ways, whether it be Russia or whether it be people in the Deep South who right. are trying to find a new candidate for their party. Yeah, well, and just one more really quick example <clears throat> to tie it back to Star Wars. I think the, the, one of the things that I love about The Force Awakens is the way that it uses the Republic, which we weren't expecting. I think one of the biggest sort of curveballs of The Force Awakens, which is a movie that has been scrutinized before its release more than really any other movie ever, was we were completely unprepared for the way the Republic was going to be used, which is this separate thing from what our heroes are doing. This, this government that exists and has nominal control over a lot of territory, but is unwilling or unable to sort of do the right thing in a very basic sense, because it's caught up in political calculations, it, 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 it doesn't want to admit that the First Order is the threat that it is because then it would sort of have to react. I would draw a connection to Syria, which I think is the most intractable problem in the world today. And this is where I, I don't know if I was articulating it well enough with Ukraine, but I think what my point is, is that you see clearly unacceptable behavior in Syria, and yet there are all kinds of political reasons why that situation continues to exist, right? I mean. I think anybody listening to this podcast can, can think of a million times where they have seen an atrocity reported in Syria, um, perhaps with you know Russian government helping the Syrian government, and then the Russian government goes to the UN and says, of course we're not involved in this at all. Mm -hmm. Now, any reasonable person can see the Syrian government's fingerprints all over it, the Russian government's fingerprints all over it. This is widely reported information, and yet you have this norm that's broken down of being honest. Um, now, I'm not saying that people always told the truth in, in eras past. That's obviously not what I'm saying. But there is a different way of engaging with clear, obvious facts. And sort of the fact that you know, Russia continues to deny that it is doing certain things in Syria makes it harder for the United States to respond in certain ways. And it makes people throw up their hands and say, I just don't understand why we can't fix this problem. And it's because we're trying to grapple with the dissolution of norms in an era where we don't have new norms ready yet. And to bring it back to Star Wars, the Republic isn't getting involved in a lot of the things that the First Order is doing on the edges because it either doesn't have satisfactory proof that the First Order is doing it, and of course the First Order would deny it, or it has the proof, but to accept the validity of that proof would mean to commit yourself to certain actions, right? I mean, I keep thinking about, you know, the U.S. government is asked all the time, you know, it's very clear that Russia did this, this, and this. Why aren't you 
hold them accountable. And they say, you know, well, look, we're continuing to work with our partners, you know, blah, 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 this kind of this spin and this very polished, canned language, which only increases frustration, right? Because you don't feel like your government is taking it seriously. You feel like they're just kicking the can down the road and promising they're going to deal with it. And again, that fuels the chaos that we're talking about. That fuels the frustration we're talking about when we can't solve a problem like Syria or even take certain steps to make the problem less awful. Um, I think that really connects to the, the impotence of the republic um, because it is less of an active organization than a sort of politically complacent one. Wow. Anyway. Mind blown. I'll be teaching a class uh, tonight at uh, 8.30 if anybody wants to uh, attend Mind the seminar. Mind blown by Eric Geller. I, I, I guess my last question for you, and then we'll, we'll get on out of here, is given all of that, given everything that's going on in the election in the world, you made a great appeal in 2012 on StarWars.com about why people needed to get off their butts and go vote. No matter what people feel, Star Wars is a story of civic engagement and what mm-hmm. happens when you do not engage. Yeah. Why do people need to get out and vote despite whatever they're feeling this November? I just think every second of your life that you live, if you live in a, in a democratic country, if you live in a communist country, I can't do much for you. You're not going to be able to affect what your leaders do unless you protest or riot. If you live in a democracy, every second of your life, no matter how political you think you are or how much you think you live outside that system, every second of your life is affected by who's in charge in this city, Washington, that we're sitting in right now. We're sitting in Arlington, but that's not the point. Um, and it's affected by who's sitting in your state capital, it's your state, your state's capital, and it's affected by who's sitting in your city's mayor's office, right? You may not think about it, but every policy that is put into place or isn't put into place because who is because of who is in charge affects you in some way. And so you have to just accept that basic truth and then if you accept that, then you're basically saying, you know, do I want to have some control over my life or do I don't? Do I not? I mean, if you choose not to vote, you're essentially saying, I'm fine with giving up this, this aspect of control over my life, right? I mean, I'll, I'll give one example. If you think that it's incredibly important for um, uh, racial minorities to have the same degree of access to the franchise and to all kinds of rights um, as, as white people do, and you don't vote for the candidate who has promised that they're going to make that a centerpiece of their platform, you're essentially saying, I'm fine living in a world where that isn't prioritized. Now, you can say, well, I'm just one vote. Well, that's true, but there's an important psychological aspect to this. If everybody said that, then nothing would change. And so you just have to accept that whether you like it or not, your life is affected by the decisions that are going to be made in November. And at that point, then it's just a question of, do you want control over your life or not? And that's, you know, you have to make that decision for yourself how much control you want. I would think most people want as much control as possible, but you know, who am I to judge? So go vote if you want control. That's the way I would put it. There you have it, folks. Eric Geller, where can folks find you on social media and get connected with you and your stuff? Um, well, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Eric Geller, E-R-I-C-G-E-L-L-E-R. Um, you can find my latest stories there. Um, I mostly write for our subscription service, but um, when I put up a story that goes out to our main site, I will put a link there and anybody can access that. Eric, thanks so much. This was a lot of Thank fun. you. Appreciate-